This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. In these conversations, we make sense of what's next. Join me, my co-hosts, and my guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hello, everyone. Simone here. Today, I'm running this episode together with my dear co-founder and co-host, Eugenio Battaglia. Uh, Today, we are talking to Bill Fischer, professor of innovation management at IMD Business School in Lausanne, uh, also co-founder and co-director of the IMD program on uh, driving strategic innovation, uh, which is a cooperation with the Sloan School of Management at MIT. Uh, Bill is also author of several books and he runs a regular column on Forbes entitled The Ideas Business. We are thoroughly great admirers of Bill's work and we have also had the chance to collaborate with him uh, last year uh, on an exploration of the Chinese company's hires, a revolutionary organizational model called uh, Rendan Hei, which you will hear us talk about a lot in the current episode. In our conversation, we are exploring how incumbent organizations are likely to respond to pressures coming from a plummet in transaction costs, and therefore they need to extend their organizational model across boundaries. We explore the cultural, organizational, and leadership resistance that such a transformation will inevitably encounter, especially in relationship with the key elements of Western culture that drove the development of the corporate world uh, in Europe and in the US. Dear listeners, if you're interested in knowing more about the higher model, don't miss signing up for our upcoming webinar tomorrow on the 29th of April, where Simone, together with Bill and other great panelists, will present and discuss the story of higher group and its organizational model. The webinar will also be a unique chance to get informed about an upcoming higher certified three half-day online course that Simone will run together with Bill in June this year. You can find all this information and how to sign up on our website, www.platformdesigntoolkit.com under the tab thinking and of course in the show notes to this episode now let's listen to what bill has to say about the art of architecting organizational transformation towards thriving ecosystems enjoy so bill you know you have this amazing long experience with these uh, innovative companies from 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 the east especially with hired and uh, you also have a long experience with the european companies so maybe you can uh, quickly highlight uh, the differences that you, you see uh, in how these different uh, approaches and cultural management have responded to the new possibilities that uh, uh, reimagining the organization in a more networked and uh, uh, you know independent way uh, uh, is, is bringing. So what are the main differences that you are seeing in terms of cultural adoption and resistance? Right. So what, 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 I, what I have seen is if I look at the European companies that I work with, most of those companies are um, successful market incumbents. They've gone through an evolution where they've gone from being um, relatively idea-rich and exploratory to, once they became successful in the marketplace, to begin to in the process of scaling up, in the process of moving from what my good friend Charlie Fine would call nail it to scale it, in that process, they begin to lose some of their enthusiasm for experimentation. 
Um, they begin to reduce variance wherever they can find it. And um, they focus on managerial choices that will reduce costs rather than rather than come up with novel ideas. So in a sense, incidentally, that's not wrong. That Those are ex- historically, those have been exactly the right choices to make because as you become successful you and broaden your customer base, you move from customers who are willing to entertain experimental types of offerings and who have a high tolerance for, you know, I don't want to say failure, but I have a high tolerance for um, surprise to customers who are really looking at the brand promise as offering the same performance over and over and over again. They want lower price and they want no surprises. So in, in, in being able to meet those changing customer expectations, um, they make choices which are the right choices if you want to grow your business and and make profits, but they they make the wrong choices in case a surprise occurs in the external environment that changes suddenly changes the uh, the situation around them. And and I think we're seeing that. I think I said that earlier. I think we're seeing this in the coronavirus challenge today. But I also think when I think about hire, what we're seeing is that their organization their their business environment is changing and they're moving from things they're familiar with to things they're unfamiliar with. And if they maintain their same, their traditional organizational culture, they're putting themselves in a, in a, a no-win situation. That is interesting, Bill, because one thing I was thinking when you were introducing this efficiency topic, you know, that when you think about efficiency, maybe in the traditional ways that the Western uh, bureaucratic companies have been thinking about, it's always about becoming a commodity, you know, so it's really becoming efficient and bringing, you know, achieving uh, um, economies of scale and, and serving as much as possible customers. And on the other hand, uh, it looks like... Uh, when you uh, evolve for a more efficient way to generate innovation uh, in a networked world, uh, what you end up doing is um, largely removing and reducing the importance of middle management, which is completely another route. Uh, and uh, I, a few days ago, I was looking at Twitter and I've seen uh, hires uh, Twitter handles that uh, I don't remember which one perfectly, but they were proudly... Uh, tweeting that uh, when they transformed the organization, they had to lay off like thousands of middle management. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and you know, this is something that I couldn't imagine to happen in a, in a, in a, a European or Western company more in general. What do you feel about that? Is this uh, re- removal of middle management something that is really uh, uh, an important aspect of uh, uh, restructuring an organization f- for the network age? And how would this uh, be... Uh, 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 you know, uh, accepted and uh, and uh, uh, put uh, uh, in place uh, uh, when think when we think about uh, European or, or Western organizations more in general. Um, so I I think that the number actually was um, tw- as many as twelve thousand middle managers were removed, and and I think it goes back to asking yourselves, asking ourselves, what's the role of middle management? And in a traditional pyramid structured organization. The role of there's two primary roles of middle management. One is to take the vision and mission and strategy of the organization 
and then interpreted for different business units below in below in the in the pyramid and then the second role is to keep checking up and making sure that they got the message and are performing against the the criteria that were established um that assumes that the people at the top know what's going on are in are in a position to make the right choices and can move fast what happened at higher was there was a belief that that was wrong that that in fact they needed to flip their pyramid upside down so that the people closest to the customer in a fast moving consumer market um, w- would be able to identify changing customer trends and respond to them quickly and and they didn't need the control and checkups and 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 conversations of interpretations about the vision and values because in fact they were the ones who were setting it so th- so it wasn't that middle management was bad. It was just no longer necessary with the changing organizational model. And uh, would you think that uh, such uh, an embracement of uh, uh, middle management-less organizing uh, would be possible culturally, I would say, uh, this transition would be culturally manageable from a Western organization? So there's no reason why Western organizations couldn't make that adjustment, but it's not traditional. So I don't think it's unimaginable, but I think it's not traditional. It's And, and it, it's not something that there are many examples of. So it it comes as a surprise. And, and then you have the shock of asking yourselves, what are we going to do with all these people who in, incidentally have been doing exactly what we asked them to do, only the world around us has changed and we no longer need them to do that. So there's a lot of, I think, a lot of understandable, practical um, reasons why this is so difficult to do, but it's not impossible. I, I, I actually, at the very early in my career, I worked with a company in Denmark called Oticon, hearing aid company, and much smaller, much, you know, maybe less than 2,000 employees, but they did this as well. So th- there are examples, and, you know, um, th- there have been other examples of organizations that have tried to make this uh, happen, but it's it's not easy. One, one interesting way to look at that, uh, I think, is that uh, when we look at uh, the Chinese, for example, the Chinese companies, they have a different relationship with uh, two things, which is uh, technology on one side and uh, central authority, I would say. So I would say uh, if we look at higher, for example, the massive uh, use that they, that they are doing of uh, coordination technologies, uh, and uh, this is something that also resonates with uh, uh, a few uh, comments that uh, just the block uh, made at the Drake Forum where we were both uh, present. And when we said that basically in, in, the, in the context of Burzorg, they transformed the bureaucracy into software. Yes. Uh, so, so one hand, we have this idea that technology is going to be massively deployed in how you organize. Uh, and on the other hand, there needs to be these, uh, uh, you know, you said that uh, in higher, for example, they don't believe that the, the strategy can come just from the top, but lots of uh, general direction and general vision, uh, the philosophical framing of the organization is coming from the center, let's say, not from the board and from this very iconic uh, CEO. 
So, so these two things seem like uh, uh, not just uh, uh, um, you know uh, coming from from China, but more in general, they seem more uh, uh, tools that are more uh, you know apt to. Uh, help organization to restructure for an age of network. What, what do you think? So I, th- I think what happens is that um, the, the role of the leader is critically important. And I think at higher, um, higher is fortunate enough to have uh, a leader like Zhang Min, who is um, curious about the world around him, um, not accepting of what's what, what's been done in the past, but always looking for a different way to um, uh, connect with the environment around the organization, um, who is, you know, pr- probably the closest thing to a visionary that I've ever met, um, and who is also self-confident enough and has the uh, organizational authority to, to, to really take some big decisions about how the organization's going to be run. But on the other hand, he's been doing this for a long time. So the people who work at hire are not surprised by it. They're 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 used to his style. Probably the people who couldn't accept his style are long gone, and the people who join higher today know what they're getting into. And so it's an organization, I think, that is um, highly aligned in, um, in in for lack of a better term, an entrepreneurial spirit, where people really are looking forward to. To change. That's not true of most organizations that I work with. Most organizations I work with see change as episodic, not continuous, and they see something to, you know, once we get through this, things will be better. But at higher, we're never going to get through this. It's always going to be change after change after change. And I think that that provides the organization with a spirit and an attitude that makes it easier to embrace change. So what, what a great advantage. You know, what a, what a great advantage to, 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 to know that your organization is looking forward to the next change as opposed to going to work and knowing that your organization dreads whatever comes next. Mm-hmm. So, so can we see that, can we say that uh, uh, maybe to achieve this transition, you really have these changes uh, on these three layers, on the organizational design, layer that is more probably also uh, you know do do you uh, would say ascrivable to uh, uh, a leader that can also act as an architect a little bit yes we so can have uh, this approach of uh, architecting how the organization should work but also two underlying uh, aspects which are one is profoundly cultural uh, and uh, one is technological no so so there is this uh, need to enable uh, large-scale technologies that can help coordination happen through the organization, but there's also this need to tran- transition towards a new culture that is much more change-friendly, much more entrepreneurial. Uh, it, you know, when, when you were discussing this, I, I, I kind of thought that it was also uh, some kind of generational transition. Um, and it, it's hard for us maybe to understand this generationally when we talk about China because the demographics are completely different than Europe. But do you, do you think that uh, it's also a kind of generational problem that uh, a European organization may may have may are, are probably leaving these days? Well, you know, it, I, so I agree completely about the organizational architecture and the and the massive technological intervention. One of the things that I've always been impressed by with higher is that 
while I while I do believe they dream bigger or they're they're receptive to bigger dreams, they always complement those dreams with extreme detail. So you and I have have witnessed how they have changed very granular mechanisms within the organization enable to better support the achievement of the dreams. And and so I always think hire is a story of dreams and details. And if you leave the details out, and and many of the casual um, uh, recollections of hire success don't mention the details. What they're what, what you're missing out on is the, the the real underpinnings of how to make this happen. You know, the, uh, the the organization is not only thinking about what do we want to do, but they're very much worried about or not worried is the wrong word. They're very much thoughtful about how are we going to make this happen. What do we have to change in terms of our organizational design? What do we have to change in terms of our you know, coordinating mechanisms. How is this all going to work so that so that in fact we can achieve the bigger dreams that we have? Um, and I think that's not necessarily Chinese, but I think it's unusual. It takes a great deal. It takes a very wide leadership bandwidth to be able to both inspire workers uh, to to take chances and provide. Um, the, the 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 structural elements to make it easier for them to do it. I you know um, I also think that w- w- when I think about hire, one of the when I think about John Ray Min's role in hire, and you know you talk about generations. John Ray Min is not a young guy; he's my age, right? And so, but he's the author of these changes. So I I don't know how that works, but I'm but I do know that in many many big innovations. What you see is that there is a senior figure who is, you know, behind the scenes making things happen so that the organization is able to achieve its its ambitions. And almost always those ambitions are realized by a younger generation of people who have the energy and the ambition, um, but who in traditional organizations lack the political power. And at higher, the political power is being um, uh, taken care of by John Ray Min and his and his team at the top. So it makes it easier for people below to be able to do that. One last thought. Um, I, I agreed with your use of the term architect for John Ray Min because I think, in fact, he has been an architect in terms of rethinking the organization. But as we sit here talking, it occurs to me that his role in the architecture has frequently been to remove impediments rather than to put new approaches into place. So I think what he's done is he's removed barriers to change and encouraged um, and encouraged his um, colleagues to create these new approaches to change. Some of them are going to work, some are not, but they're not guessing about it; they're trying it. Yeah, 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 definitely. I think uh, this is uh, something that we also witness. You know, this is, this idea that architecting sometimes it's about removing. You know, and especially when it deals with uh, bureaucracy, for sure, uh, the, the the role of removing bureaucracy it could be definitely the role of the architect. Right. And uh, you know, m- more in general, uh, do you see this? More, um, you know, we we spoke a lot about higher and. Uh, uh, we're going to give some uh, um, information to the podcast notes for our listeners. But uh, 
is this something that uh, this transition, this transformation, is this something that you just witnessed in uh, higher or do you think that uh, in China, for example, uh, there is a broader movement that is more uh, inclined to these transformations? Or, you know, is it just really this company that is, uh, uh, among others, maybe also in the West, uh, that is uh, setting the stage for, for this uh, transformation? Right. So I, so I think that um, in China, like in the West, there is a um, startup culture that's associated with um, new, new economy types of activities. Um, and, and they are characterized, these organizations are characterized by giving more autonomy to um, <clears throat> work units that are closer to the action. I think what makes hire so interesting is that three things. One is it's not new economy. It's, it's a historically old economy company. The second thing is the scale. It's 70,000 employees. It's not a bunch of people in an incubator. And the third thing is, is that it's, um, it's been doing this for 35 years. So, you know, th- th- there's a, a degree of consistency and persistence here that is simply unimaginable. But, but I think that what they're doing is not at all unique. I think it's unique to their sector it's it's interesting. We first got interested in well, among m- many reasons why hire was so interesting was because China was traditionally seen as a um, classical, uh, s- centralized, hierarchical society, and that it would be more difficult to do these types of um, uh, of, of autonomous work unit um, uh, initiatives. But but it, but I, I do see it elsewhere in China. But I think Hire is the exemplar. It's really the one that's doing more of it faster, first, and longer than anyone else. So, uh, Bill, uh, let's move into a more general uh, reflection no? in terms of uh, uh, when we think about a corporation and when we think about an existing institution uh, and uh, we want to... Uh, imagine how this uh, organizational structure needs to change and transform uh, um, in a way that embeds and integrates these new ideas of uh, uh, platforms, ecosystems, and network structures. Uh, you know, what do you see, uh, what patterns do you see emerging in terms of uh, 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 organizational structures and designs? So, um, I th- What's interesting to me is that I think that um, th- this whole movement towards ecosystem development is being um, driven by a realization that traditional organizations um, in rapidly rapidly changing industries lack sufficient expertise to be able to address all of the, the, more, the ever more complex issues that are being driven. So if we think about hire, um, the, the, they, they were doing just fine before intelligent smart homes became a possibility. And once smart homes became a possibility, then they, then they dramatically had to change their expertise base. Um, I, I'm always struck by the fact that they said that for years, 
they would see a customer every 15 years. The customer would come in, buy a refrigerator. If everything worked well, if the customer experience was a satisfactory one, the customer would reappear 15 years later. Hire would know no more about the customer than they knew before, and the customer would buy another refrigerator. Now, all of a sudden, and, and this was not hires doing, this is, you know, this external tectonic um, uh, shift that's taking place around the Internet of Things. When the Internet of the thing, Internet of Things hits the home and particularly hits the kitchen, then all of a sudden, hire is in a position to speak to that customer 10 or 12 times a day. That changes everything. Um, that, that, that absolutely changes. So hire doesn't have the skills. They don't have the expertise. They don't have the tradition. They don't have the organization. You know, they don't have any of the stuff they need to be able to satisfactorily consummate those conversations. So they need help. And, and what they were what I, what I admire so much in the way higher works is that rather than try to do this inside, you know, all by ourselves, what they did then was to willingly seek out partners in what now has become an ecosystem, seek out partners who presumably were always there, but were not recognized as such. And they've embraced them in a way that allows those partners to contribute the full extent of their expertise um, and, and do it in partnership with hire to make the, in this particular case, the customer's experience so much richer. Um, and, and then in order to do that, in order to do that, then they had to change the way they were organized internally because the old organization was no longer fit for purpose. The old organization required a high degree of autonomy at the customer-facing units and a willingness, a willingness to really blur the boundaries between hire and its potential ecosystem partners so that there would be a degree of trust and sharing that had never before existed. And and those are I think heroic choices that have to be made by leadership, and they're mostly choices that involve removing barriers to connectivity and um, and trusting the workforce to get on with the job and do what they can do better than anyone else. Mm. And it's also very interesting uh, to uh, to see that uh, basically in this transition, you need to start factoring in. Uh, uh, much more different uh, stakeholders when you think about your organizational design. No? So, for example, one thing that uh, uh, higher, but in general, Chinese company do uh, quite a lot is to, um, you know, basically imagining roles for, for people in their networks. Uh, so, so, for example, in China, there is a lot of uh, uh, people that are really actively socially organizing their communities like uh, you know they maintain for example these large uh, networks of contacts and, and and you know they're actively involved in bringing new services uh, into the uh, into the market and uh, so 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 basically somehow uh, an organization a modern organizational model needs to be also culturally ready to uh, involve non-employees uh, in a more, much more regular 
base. You know? So, for example, you, you spoke about uh, having contacts with customers every every 10 or 15 days instead of 15 years. But uh, my impression is that it's not just it's not just about customers anymore. It's also about you know all these uh, active uh, producers of value in a way that is very similar to what. Uh, uh, companies like you know the Airbnbs or the Ubers or the, or the West uh, have, are doing by leveraging this workforce more more uh, uh, generally, more widely. Uh, maybe the difference, if I can spot one difference, is uh, you know the, the, the traditional platform marketplace model that we are seeing in the West uh, is considering people much more like you know uh, resources or commodities that can be leveraged. Uh, while on the on the on the other side, you know what I see, for example, happening in higher, there is much more a space for these people in the ecosystem to um, really be creative, uh, creatively uh, uh, embra- engaging with these new roles, and and you know develop their entrepreneurial spirit as well. Yes. So so I think what higher realized, and I you know this is not this didn't happen overnight. This has been thirty five years in the making, but. Zhang Weimin has always had this great abiding faith in the power of um, of, of his workforce, uh, that, that they know a lot of stuff, but that the organization has historically been in the way of them fulfilling the, the full realization of what they know. And so what I think he's done in this particular case is as they moved into realms of expertise that they knew nothing about, he was willing to say to, to acknowledge that to say we don't we don't have those skills or talent, and then he was he was willing to support um, the building of platforms that made it easier for these quote unquote outsiders to become insiders. So so you know so they broke down the barriers between outside and inside and they allowed people from all different walks of life to suddenly bring their ideas to hire and if the ideas made sense um to become part of a, a of an ecosystem um that that shared the value created among all of its contributors so that they would benefit from it i i think it's it's such an interesting model um because what it says is that you know, together we're stronger than we are apart, and 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 also, also, it does not presume to know which areas of investment are going to be likely to be the most successful. So it invites people to place bets, um, and, and by placing bets, higher will. I guess I believe that in the future, in an unknown future. Incidentally, it's an unknown future because we've never done this before. Historically, most organizations are built to deal with uncertain futures, things we've done before we're familiar with. We just don't know the day-to-day variations. This is much bigger than that. This is we're higher is dealing with a future that the, the smart home that nobody had ever had to deal with before. So, so there's, it's hard for them to predict what's going to be successful or what isn't because there's no basis of historical evidence to make those predictions on. And so what Hire has begun to do is to say, we need more ideas rather than fewer. Let's, let's, let's break down the barriers that have kept outside ideas away from us. And then 
let's let people take chances. And and who better to take chances than the employees who are either passionate about an idea or closer to a customer and understand those ideas. So in many ways, Simone, one of the things I've learned from you um, that I think is so important is that I... I have been, you know, I've grown up in a sense in a world where the customer experience has been the ultimate defining um, uh, basis of success or failure. And and I still think it's a critically important basis of success or failure. But what higher has, but that, that works best in a world that's familiar. So we can bring the ideas in how, inside and we can get closer to the customer, and we can help the customer develop. But what you've pointed out to me, I, I hope I'm saying this right, is that um, hire's ultimate advantage in the future might be its ability to curate relationships um, among insiders and outsiders uh, so that they are able to create customer experience that no customer has ever thought about. Um, they're able to deliver on the customer experiences the customer has thought about. But it's the it's the ability to attract these and and develop these relationships that has become much much more important in the future um, than it was in the past. Am I getting that close? Is that is that? Yeah, that definitely resonates with uh, with um, how we generally see this uh, evolution of uh, of the firm towards uh, more like a, a, a an interaction uh, facilitator than actually a production, um, uh, you know, a, an operational, you know, artifact. Yes, exactly. And you know, for, for, so and to do that, you need a different organization because the old organization that was. That was internally that was you know internally capable is no longer fit for purpose. So you now need a new organization, and I think the platforms that Hire has built um, are an effort to to make that happen in an organizational sense. So when I think of the Hire model, um, I always try to imagine how this will fit in a Western or generally European context. And I think about the regulation around the industry regulation. And I can even imagine that to evolve to accommodate for such a model in the Western world. What I really cannot imagine is um, how to channel the inherent petty politics that exist in this kind of, in many organizations that we know. Um, and how this is different in China culturally or because of the Rendaihe or because of the sides or because of different kind of uh, specificities. So if, if I think about, um, so I think this is a general phenomena and I think we see glimpses of how the Rendaihe model works, could work in, in a Western environment. So, for example, we sit here talking in the middle of the coronavirus outbreak, and um, um, which is shaking our economies and our societies to their very core. Things unthinkable only a few months ago are happening all around us. And I'm, I don't have to tell you, being based in Italy, how profound this is. If you take a look at the same time, if you look at the outburst of innovativeness that is taking place, people who are redesigning ventilators um, when, when the hospitals can see no other way of getting 
uh, the ability to, to care for patients, people who are reinventing face masks when face masks are unavailable in, in our societies. Um, I, I'm just people who are trying to decode the virus and then and then um, uh, come up with some way of addressing it, vaccine or otherwise. I'm so impressed with the tempo of the innovation that's taking place. But where is it taking place? It's not taking place in the big organizations. In fact, the big organizations inevitably slow it down. It's taking place in groups of people who historically would never have been involved in the conversation. And so I see the same sort of energy and spirit and entrepreneurial activities taking place um, around us today that Hire has been able to unleash over the last few years in the with the Rendon-Hri model. And I think the, 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 what's common between all of them is um, a recognition that, that anyone can be an entrepreneur, that anyone can be a maker, that we all, we all have a stake in the future of our organizations or our societies, a recognition that organizations can get in the way. And so if we can essentially deorganize, you know, go back to smaller, faster moving groups, uh, localized decision making at the front of the process rather than at the end of the process. Um, and if we and are highly experimental in what we do, knowing that most of these things are not going to work, but giving anyone with an idea an opportunity to take a chance. Um, and then finally, finally, which I think is important to both Rendon Khuri and, and, and what the, we see around us, there's there's the there's the hope that my idea is going to make it big, and if my idea is going to make it big, we're all going to share in the value created, um, me included. So th those are all I think part of the liberating energies of Rendon Hui, and what Hire has been able to do is been able to do that as part of its organizational operating system, right? It's become the organizational operating system, whereas most organizations. Uh, most traditional organizations are unable to do that because their internal operating system is based on command and control. It's based on the reduction of the individual rather than the enlargement of the individual. It's based on, it's far from sharing the value created. Um, and and so, I, so I'm optimistic about the application of what Rendon Hui could do with with organizations, whether they're Chinese or Western. Do you, do you agree with that? I mean, Eugencio and um, and and Simone, am I saying something that's surprising or, you know, outrageous, or do you agree with this? Well, you know, I will speak on my side, and then I'll leave to Genio to integrate. Um, it, it totally resonates. One one thing that uh, um, it resonates in in a weird way, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> is that I feel sometimes that the command and control structure that uh, most of the traditional Western organizations are uh, uh, projecting on their employees, it's uh, more like uh, a cultural element than actually an organizational element. So, so I mean, you know, we invented bureaucracy in Europe and... Uh, uh, Somehow we invented this relationship with between capital and and labor, and uh, sometimes it feels like you know uh, these uh, command and control structures are more expression of this cultural uh, tradition and uh, relationship between capital and labor, as you know the good old Marxist uh, literature uh, ex explains. Uh, then actually 
uh, something that is useful to achieve uh, something on the market, you know. So it's not a case, I believe, that uh, the two main revolutions that we have been witnessing in terms of management transformation, one is for sure the Japanese Toyota-led lean uh, revolution that uh, was always about putting people at the center and, uh, uh, you know, giving them the space to express themselves. And uh, even more, this new uh, revolution coming from the experience of higher uh, that uh, really is an entrepreneurial one. I think uh, somehow both of them uh, uh, are more like culturally challenging than actually organizationally challenging for, for Western organizations. I don't know if Eugenio, if you want to add uh, something more. Yeah, to me, the consideration on this case, there are many. Um, I think when it comes to this kind of conversation, we are often... We are often projecting all of this conversation into something that should be external, like a model that should work upon us. And, and that's all fine, because that's also what we need. Um, what I think that Rendai Hay and other kind of um, uh, work, uh, culture of work have nailed down is something that resonates with the actual culture and the motivation of, the, of all different stakeholders. And so this, I think, is a fruitful way to, to channel um, everything that doesn't work, because when we talk about petty politics, um, which was my point late, uh, uh, just a minute before, um, but also uh, inefficiencies in terms of organizing, coordinating, and so on, these all come because of years, years of not listening to this ecosystem of, of employees, of entrepreneurs, of partners. So to, to move out from this, is, it, it takes a while. It's not something that you just adopt from one day to the other. It's not just like you install a tool and then from tomorrow on your entire organization is going to work in this way. So it's a socio-technical system and it works with people and people have their own behavioral change that requires time and so on. So I really trying to figure in my mind what in the innovation culture and the change culture in the Western organization that we work with what could be the fruitful context for this to, to change the rules of the game and to bring people in this direction rather than keep competing but in a toxic way and uh, for the few power position and this kind of benefit. That model is like not working anymore. Uh, this, this we know. And so I'm really interested in this. Well, I, I, you know, I think you need... So the role of the visionary leader should not be discounted. I think what you need is someone who is in a position to um, authorize change, um, make people enthusiastic about change, um, provide direction without a recipe for how that direction is going to be fulfilled. I mean, I think all of those things are critically important. Um, and I think at a societal level in the West, um, we lack that um, at, at the moment, for sure. And um, in many of the organizations that we have, the people who are at the top of those organizations were never chosen for those criteria, for those attributes. They were chosen for other attributes, usually around some type of technical or commercial expertise. And so we probably have the, 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 the wrong people running many of our organizations. It's not that they're malevolent, it's just that they don't know how to change. They've spent their entire careers amassing power, and now we're saying you have to give it up, and, and that seems to them to be insane. Um, 
And and higher, of course, has the benefit of somebody who believes that that's not insane to do, and he's been in that role for thirty five years. So so I think that's that that that's an advantage. But the other thing is is we need this architect role so that at the same time somebody is saying how do we make this possible? How how do we? So Simone used the the the, the idea of of Toyota. Well, what Toyota was also doing at the, at the time when it was building these lean organizations and, and really moving into a very, very different approach to manufacturing, what they were also doing where they were also saying, in fact, when they went into China, they said, look, there's three things, that, all three of which cannot be new. We cannot build new products with a new workforce in a new factory, right? If If we do that, we're setting ourselves up to fail. Somewhere there needs to be an old. It, there either needs to be experienced workers, or it needs to be a well-established factory that's run in the past, or it needs to be products that we're familiar with. And so when they moved into China what, in, the, in the 90s, I guess it was, um, they, they brought Japanese workers into new factories to produce somewhat new products. But these workers were experienced. So so it wasn't an abrupt change. And, and I think Hire has done that over and over and over again. Hire has never taken a flying leap into the future. It, it's, it's always had, you know, it's always had some familiar things. Their, their performance management system, I would argue, has been virtually unchanged for 30 some odd years. And right. so I might not know this new challenge very well, but I know how I'm going to be measured. I know how my performance is going to be judged. And as a result, I can have some confidence in the decisions that I make. And I think that that degree of, of attention to detail has been um, extremely important as a contributor to hire's success. Also, one other thing. Also, historically, hire has made big changes when it's successful. And in many of the cases, many of the Western firms that I'm working with, they are past success, right? They're in the post-success era so that they may still be an incumbent market leader um, and they may be successful relative to the way that the existing industry works, but they're smart enough to know this is not the future, that the future is going to be very, very different. And, and everybody in the company knows that. And so what happens is that people in the company are worried. Um, and resources are scarce. And that's the wrong time to make a big change. When you want to make a big change, make the big change when when people are successful and they're comfortable with each other. They're, 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 the resources are abundant and they feel good about themselves. And hire has done that. You know, and, and in some ways, by by essentially provoking a big change periodically, it's done that at the time when, when most most organizations, particularly most shareholder-led Western organizations, would be trying to get a year or two more out of the advantages associated with an already long-lived successful product. Higher is at that point in time saying, let's cannibalize that success. Um, let's cannibalize our profits and let's change because the industry is going to change, we can see that, and let's be at the forefront of change rather than rather than the end. There are companies that have done that. Intel did that for many years. Apple has sort of done that for many years. Maybe not today, but but in the past. Um, so so it's not a an un, you know it's not a, an unprecedented thing. 
But to do it for as long as Hire has done it on the scale that they're doing it, it's really impressive. And uh, Bill, as a, as a closure reflection to this conversation, I want to ask you one thing. You know, you spoke about uh, uh, the, what's happening and uh, you quickly spoke about the future. So my question is really, how do you see the future in terms of uh, organizational development and transformation in this context? Now, because uh, uh, one thing that scares me a little bit is that you mentioned that most of the Western companies are now operating in a context of uh, Uh, I don't want to say fear, but, you know, research uh, reduction and uh, and changes coming up for which the organization is clearly not ready. Um, so given these and given also the new risk uh, uh, factors that we are clearly seeing, you know, today is 30th of March and we are all regarding this from our houses because uh, more or less everybody's in lockdown through, due to this uh, coronavirus epidemic. So given this new context, no, new risks coming up, uh, challenges, uh, uh, arriving in a context of management and organizations that are already suffering a lot of uh, you know, their lack of uh, transformation in the last uh, maybe 20 or 30 years, how do you see that playing out? How do you see these uh, organizations of the future uh, um, transforming? So if I go back to a couple of successful transformation experiences I've seen outside of hire. And they're, they're, they're not new ones. I'm thinking of, I'm thinking three that I can think of. One is um, Otakon in the 90s when it went through a rather dramatic change in Denmark, but it was at the time one of the world leaders in its industry. It still is. Um, the second was ABB under Percy Bonovic when they decided that they needed to get more out of their new organization which was a joint venture between two very strong Swedish and Swiss organizations, and they needed to get more out of that. And then today's, as I understand what's going on today at General Electric Appliances in the United States, which is owned by hire, I think some of the things that I see in common is that, um, is that there's a degree of honesty between senior management and the and the, and the So the workforce is treated differently. The workforce is treated as colleagues rather than as bosses and, and employees. Um, there's a degree of honesty in the communication between senior management, if you will, and the rest of the organization. And the, and, and the honesty is about the situation that, the, that they feel the organization is in. And there's an invitation to help out. Um, I, IMD did work a few years ago with Stora Enso, the uh, Finnish company that was, I believe this is true, um, I may be off by 100 years, but was first founded in the 14th century. And they reached a point, they're paper making, paper machine making companies. They reached a point where um, the senior management team, led by a very, very interesting um, um, CEO, put out a notice on the um, intranet saying, you know, we need help. We need help from everybody in the organization. We need ideas. We need um, a, 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 to the point where they had parallel groups of management teams representing new ideas and old ideas, if you will. That's probably not the right way to characterize it. But, but so I think there's this willingness in organizations that face these challenges to treat, to recognize the skills and talent that are assembled in the organization, to embrace an attitude that says, we believe our people want to succeed 
And we want to help them do that. And then the dismantling of the barriers that get in the way. And, um, and I think as part of that, remember we talked about middle management earlier. As part of that, one of the real sources of fear, infectious fear in an organization is what's going to happen to us. And, that, and that's particularly important in middle management organizations, in, in the middle management of organizations that are facing profound transformational change. And I think that, that, that the organizations I've described made a really conscious effort to work with middle management to help them figure out how they could continue to add value in an organization that no longer had that middle management role. And, you know, for the most part, they did it. Um, the, 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 the people at hire that were laid off were not people, from what I understand, were not people who were um, unable to think of uh, how else they could add value but were people who chose either not to participate in that exercise or who wanted to retain traditional roles at a time that the organization needed to be re-architected or re -re redesigned. Um, and so they really didn't want to be part of the future. They chose to remain part of a present that was soon to become the past. And, and so I think we need to shift very much towards leadership and organizational design, but incorporate but change who's involved in that conversation and change their access to facts. You know, this morning, the first thing that I saw in the newspaper when I woke up was a headline that said, government officials debating how much should the public know. Bad situation to be in. The public should know everything. We're all in this together. The worst thing that can happen is an erosion of trust because we discover that we're not being told the truth. And that's as true in societies as it is in organizations. So I think it takes a really profound rethinking of who we are as a community, what we stand for, and how we can best participate and involve, invite everybody in, because those ideas can often be, be really good ideas. This bill is going to be very challenging to the organization because, uh, uh, for example, if I think about uh, when we were together on the stage at the, uh, the racket forum with, uh, with the representative of Fire Group and somebody from the audience said, you know, is it, is it not going to be easy for everybody to become a CEO? And... Uh, uh, he was so smart when he said that, uh, uh, quoting Peter Drucker, what uh, hire asks to his, uh, em uh, its employees is not to just become CEOs, but is to become CEOs of themselves. Yes. And I think uh, th this is an essential question that uh, uh, when you start to praise for more entrepreneurial spirit because uh, you acknowledge that uh, the, the world that you live in is a world in continuous change and rapid change and needs more skin in the game and it's more uh, energy and entrepreneurial spirit, then it's, it's going to be much harder for the organization to exist in a way. So if everybody becomes an entrepreneur, there needs to be some added value that the organizational structure gives you as an entrepreneur to enterprise inside a shared context. Otherwise, everybody will be go for enterprising outside and create new organizations. So the big question is for, for large organizations existing, what do they add to this new context of uh, uh, enterprising to respond to this world in turmoil and change and transformation? What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think exactly. And, and you know what's so interesting is that I think hire is still working this through. So if you think about the platform 
organization. Um, it seems to me that, um, and, and you think about EMCs, the, the re-articulation of microenterprises, so that they work together in a more coordinated effort rather than work spastically, independently. I think what we're seeing is that as higher, and I'm using higher only as an example here, as, as higher has more experience in, in dealing with micro enterprises and how they form and how they interact with ecosystem partners, that what higher is building up is a, um, is shareable learning. And, um, you, you know, John Hagel has written a lot about the difference between scalable economy, a scalable efficiency, which, you know, best practices and the way in which we go about um, emulating the best factories in a, in, in, in a network to, to developing scalable learning. How do we learn? How do we learn from what each other's doing? How do we learn? How do, and how do we share that? And I think the, the, platform, or, the platform organization and higher is really well suited to deal with scalable learning so that, so that the reason of my, one of the reasons a microenterprise wants to remain at higher or join higher if it's an external microenterprise is because it wants to be the beneficiary of the largest set of scalable learning a, a, around. But the other thing that comes to mind is that we need to, we, we have historically not prepared leaders to be makers or entrepreneurs. You know, we have, um, uh, that those things are not covered in MBA programs. We don't address them in classical exec, executive development programs. We'll do strategy, things like that. But we don't deal with the personal responsibility that's involved with this role. Well, Andy Boynton and I wrote a book called The Idea Hunter because what we argued was that the organizations we worked with hired great people and they turned them into average employees. And they did it very, very quickly. So the people that we would see at night at the bar were very different than the people we would see in the classrooms. They were more interesting. They were more energetic. They were more ambitious. How do we create that same environment in an organization? And how do we reinforce the belief among individuals that that's the way work ought to be, right? That work ought to be about the best parts of you, not the worst. And, and work ought to be about the things that make you most happy, if you will, not the things that, that enervate you. you. And th that's going to require a lot of experimentation. And, and um, at higher, the way in which the microenterprises are structured, I think, allows them to, take, to make experiments in that regard, both experiments and what are the ideas we're pursuing and how are we pursuing them? How are the partnerships we're, we're doing? And I think that um, there's a high mortality rate. We've been told there's perhaps 80% mortality among the microenterprises that are started. So we see that some don't work. They don't work either because the market's not interested in what they're doing, or they don't work because the, the people in the microenterprise can't make it work. They can't make the relationships with ecosystem partners work. They can't work amongst themselves. And maybe this is the right way to do it, as long as there's this, there's this distilling of the lessons learned, so that we have scalable learning taking place as well. Well, Bill, that's I think uh, an excellent note to end this conversation. To having identified that when we talk about the future of organizing through platforms and ecosystems, we talk about organizations that need to somehow 
justify their existence and as a, as an as a powerful attractor magnets for entrepreneurs that want to learn faster. So so organizations really, I think this is a very strong new challenge for for thinking the organization of the future. Now how to how to exist, how to create this space for learning so that it will be worth to you know to enterprise uh, through the brand through the organization instead of becoming a uh, you know creating something new outside of an organizational ecosystem lj do you want to add some comments yeah i'm just uh, very excited and uh, yeah very curious to see how these principles might apply not only to different geog- geography but also to different contexts um thinking communities Industries. not profits yeah but also like non-business related contexts where there might be a different kind of neurodiversity than the entrepreneurial mind and how this model will empower different kind of intelligence and different kind of minds um in the artistic field and so on so super excited to see this evolving further could i just say inertia is a powerful force against change and and for the moment unprecedented inertia has been been stopped only maybe for a couple of months but it's a chance to rethink how we go about doing what we're doing and why we're doing it in the first place and i think most organizations because of the shareholder led model shareholder value model will not take advantage of making these you know reflecting on this but boy is this a great opportunity that's it. Thanks very much for this awesome conversation, Bill. I think it's going to be super insightful, especially for those of uh, uh, our you know, listeners that are involved in existing organizations that are questioning now and, and thinking about how do we evolve in this crazy world we're going to look, we're going to ex- you know, participate within in the next decade or so. So thanks again for the conversation. And uh, uh, we're going to, you know, uh, we're going to share with this with with our listeners. Listeners that want to check uh, uh, Bill's work can check his books, and uh, uh, we're going to show uh, share in the show notes uh, lots of the examples that Bill have shared with us today. Thanks, great pleasure. Thanks again for listening, and talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Boundaryless Conversation podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media and subscribe to our podcast by looking for Boundaryless Conversations on all major podcasting platforms. Also, don't forget to tune in to the webinar on the story of Hire Tomorrow on April 29th if you're curious to learn more from Bill. You can find the webinar and more information about our research, opportunities for learning and free tools on our website www.platformdesigntoolkit.com. This podcast has been brought to you by our research sponsor Intesa Sao Paulo. We also want to thank Walter Mobilio and Leo Sounds for the ad hoc music. Catching up soon.